Hey, folks, welcome to the Summit Church's Kainos podcast, where we are a pastoral podcast exploring what ethnic unity looks like in a large, predominantly white Southern church as ours, known as the Summit, with a desire to become multi-ethnic. We have a stated vision of becoming 25% minority by 2025. Uh, As our pastor, Pastor J.D., says, he acknowledges that's low-hanging fruit. Uh, Our area, our mission field, the triangle is 56% white, 44% African, oh, excuse me, 44% people of color, and we're just trying to look our, look like our mission field. So this is not any kind of political ideology or agenda that we're trying to ram down people's throats. We just have a heart to reach everybody in our mission field. Today, uh, I am especially excited uh, to have my new friend, John Mark Comer, who is a real gift to the body of Christ. Uh, pastor for 18 years at Bridgetown. Is that right, John yeah, Mark? Yeah, just. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been to his church, and uh, he is uh, being used by God greatly. These kind of multiple streams of charismatic, the full on affirmation of the gifts of the Spirit, uh, but also at the same time with the contemplative stream, spiritual formation. Uh, and God has used him, is using him greatly. John Mark has recently uh, transitioned off as lead pastor and is going to be leading a nonprofit. Is that right, John yeah. Mark? Yes. And you're headed for sabbatical. So yes. a little bit of rest. By the time you hear this, I'll hopefully be on a beach somewhere. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So besides long walks and books, anything else you got planned on your sabbatical that you feel free to talk about? Uh, we're doing a month in Africa. I'm sure we'll get to that at some point. I have an African daughter. So this will be, uh, we're going to spend a month where she's from. Nice. And I'm sure that will be emotional and wonderful. I'm doing a 21-day guided solitude retreat. Wow. Uh, from Puget Sound, Washington, with a clinical Christian clinical psychologist. Mm. So that is very intense. I mean, you turn in your phone. Literally, they confiscate it from you. Any electronics. You can't bring any books. You can't even have your Bible till the second week. Wow. No contact with the outside world. And uh, every morning, you do about an hour and a half with this older, loving, Jesus-loving clinical psychologist. So it's a, an attempt to recreate Moses in the desert is what he said. Have you done it before? No, no. I mean, I've done, I spent a lot of time in solitude and retreat and inner work, um, but never 21 days. You know, I've never, because I've never had the gift of time. That would be like my entire summer vacation. So the gift of a sabbatical is I have time. So I just thought, you know, you can't control outcomes with anything in spiritual formation, but uh, I can give God this time to see what he does in me. It's amazing. You know, it's it's interesting you you open up with that, just kind of what you're going to be doing. Uh, I've always felt like, and this is the nature of the podcast, as we're talking about what does ethnic unity look yeah. like within a local body of believers. At the same time, inevitably, you will be um, meeting people who are dealing with racial trauma. Yes. Um, and... This idea of, and I know it's bigger than this, what you're doing, but emotional health. Healing from trauma. Healing from trauma. As a central part of our discipleship to Jesus. Absolutely. So if you can riff on that just a little bit, taking, zooming out. So I'm not asking you to talk about the racial dynamics, but yeah. just 
Any thoughts on emotional health, what, what stewarding the inner life well does, especially in regards to relationship with others? Yes. Yeah, 30,000 feet, you know, emotional health is not uh, a Christianized way to just feel happy all of the time. Mm. Um, emotional health is about becoming in touch with your interiority, with what's happening on the inside of your heart living, you know, if you think of your emotional life as like kind of an iceberg, you know, there's the surface level, how your emotions manifest. And then there's this whole world underneath there of your heart and your past and your memories. And really why it matters is because uh, it's impossible to become a loving person if you are not emotionally healthy. Mm. So if the telos of, of the spiritual journey in the way of Jesus is to become a person of agape, mm. of love as defined by Jesus, which I think is crystal clear in the teachings of Jesus, the writings of the New Testament, and the best of the Christian tradition for 2,000 years, now on pretty much every single continent. Um, if that's the telos, then an emotionally unhealthy person will never reach the heights of what's possible in our transformation into people of love. So emotional health matters not for narcissistic reasons um, of I just I want to be less stressed out right, or I right. want to be more rested and relaxed or more right. happy, though those are all great things. But they matter because, as a general rule, chronically stressed out, exhausted, unhappy, miserable, disconnected from themselves people tend not to be the most loving people you've ever met. Mm. They just are self-giving and kind and you want to be around them and you're drawn to them and you feel built up by them. So, I mean, emotional health is basically letting God form your inner self. And uh, a key facet of emotional health, and of course the guru on all of this, maybe that's not the right word for Christians, but is Pete Scazzaro right, up right. in Queens, um, right. who has written a number of books, most famously Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And you can read his books. He has a course available. And uh, he's one of, the, one of the first thinkers that really introduced me to the role of uh, he would he would he would call it go back to go forward, uh, healing of memories, healing from trauma. If you have that in your background, he, healing from painful experience, from wounds. None of us, all of us, get wounded in life. Right. Some of us get massively wounded. Others of us, it's minor, you know. But all, nobody. By the time you're about thirty years old, it's not a question of are you wounded. It's all right. What's your story? Right. Where did you get wounded? And for some people, it's some you know story you'd put in a movie or in a memoir. For a lot of us, it's much more kind of low-budget made-for-TV. It's just normal, right. normal wounding. But we all have wounding. And these wounds sabotage our growth into people of love. So, you know, Scazzaro writes a lot about kind of poor theology in the Western church where people would misinterpret uh, statements like, uh, I'm a new creation in Christ, as if that somehow means that, you know, having a traumatic upbringing in my family of origin has no bearing on myself today or misinterpret Paul's line, forgetting what lies behind and pressing to what lies ahead. Spiritual bypassing. Spiritual like bypassing, yeah. yes. That's, yeah. there's, a, there's a famous writer who calls it spiritual bypassing, where you use spiritual Christian language and even bad use of Christian theology to basically bypass a father wound, a traumatic experience, an experience of racism as a child. I mean, it could be anything, assault. I mean, it could be anything. It could be really dramatic or, again, small. Spiritual bypassing, just trying to, which is basically a form of denial. It's a right. coping strategy. So we have to attend to these wounds. 
go back in order to go forward. When Paul said forgetting what lies behind, in context, he wasn't talking about like a painful experience with his dad. He was talking about being on the Sanhedrin and basically a privileged career as a powerful elite in Jewish society that he gave up in order to follow Jesus and become an apostle. So he's not saying I'm not going back to deal with my pain from my relationship with my dad or what happened to me through this divorce or this traumatic experience, the death of my sister. He's saying, basically, I gave up a lucrative career privilege and I don't think about it anymore. I'm just moving on to what God's putting, like the the call of Christ on me, the future, I'm future oriented. That's great. That's the correct interpretation of that passage. Right. Not don't go deal with your, your wounds from your whatever, you know. So I think this this does have massive bearings where where you, uh, my experience would end and yours your expertise would have to begin. But it's been really helpful for me to understand uh, the power of trauma in people's deformation and uh, multi generational trauma. The whole field of science right now called epigenetics. I'm sure mm. you've read about that. Uh, talks about how trauma gets passed down in the genetic code. So there was a, there was a Jewish doctor from Mount Sinai University Hospital um, who did this fascinating study where she isolated the stress hormone in Holocaust survivors that had been built into their body through that traumatic experience. And then she uh, did testing on their children and their grandchildren and found that same stress hormone in, her, in their grandchildren. Unreal. So there are 20-something hipsters walking around L.A. (laughs) whose grandfather was at Auschwitz. Mm. And they are literally carrying in their body, in their genetic code, the trauma their grandparent went through. Mm. So, you know, you don't have to be a Ph.D. to apply that to the black experience in America. That's that's really helpful. I mean, this is— probably the easiest statement um, I'll make, and that is 2020 Mm -hmm. was literally traumatic for a whole lot of people. Um, In the church world, what's interesting is when you have Christians who experience trauma either at their church or the church doesn't speak to it, step into it. The church is a source of trauma for some people. A lot of times they will leave and either leave the church in general, never go back to anyone's church, right. or they'll join another church that they feel safe in, but they never deal with the yes. trauma. Yes. All right. So again, I'm not talking racial trauma here. I'm talking trauma in general. How can the church be helpful in helping to disciple people in the way of Jesus in a way that equips them to navigate their, cha- their, their trauma? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a math, it's a million-dollar question. I mean, first, step one is just to be a church that is, is causing more good than harm. Right, you right, know, And every right. church causes harm because it has people in it. Right. And, I, you know, I'm, hopefully, I'd like to think that guys like you or me were, were spreading more love and goodness yeah. than we are damage right. and wounding. But I'm spreading damage and wounding. If you don't believe me, ask my children. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm a human being in yeah. need of grace. So uh, I think step one is to be not a perfect church but a healthy church where, you know, because one of the main ways that we experience healing from relational wounds, uh, whether it's at an individual level or a community level, is through... Uh, an experience with a similar kind of relationship, but that's healthy. So if you have a massive 
father wound, I'm just going to use that analogy because it's so common, then part of your healing will be coming into a healthy relationship with a new father figure Mm. who isn't perfect but is healthy. That will be a key part of your health. If you experience divorce or a painful marriage, part of your healing will be coming into a new kind of romantic relationship of fidelity that is healing for you, you know? So I think step one is just be a healthy church, (laughs) you know, not a perfect church, but we, and don't underestimate the power of that. Step two, I mean, I, I, um, I was at a church recently, uh, Darren Patrick in Nashville said this great thing. It was a very large church. And he said, hey, we just assume that two basic groups of people come in when they join our church. People are coming from two, into two basic steps. Some pe- people either need to heal or they need to grow. So here's our ministries for those of you that need to heal, and here's our ministries for those of you that are ready to grow. And that's really interesting. Some people might join the summit. Right. They just moved here. They got a new job. They moved here from Portland or wherever. And they're just like, great. I love this church. Brian's right. amazing. This is great. I love this podcast. How can I grow? Right. And so here's a discipleship pathway or here's a leadership development pathway. Other people are coming here deeply wounded. Yeah. And so what's some kind of a pathway for healing? That's good. Well, um, when we talk about issues of ethnic unity, John Mark, um, a lot of people feel like they've got to be experts um, to engage. And I think some of that is just a fear of saying the wrong thing, fear of offending. I feel that right now. Um, the whole nine. Um, what's obvious to me about you, John Mark, is uh, the glimpses I've caught of you is you have a huge heart for this and you are on a journey into this. So when I came and spoke for you, for example, uh, it was, I forget what you called it, but it was almost like a symposium on racial reconciliation, and there were all kinds of people there. I was sitting on a panel and gave a couple of lectures. Yeah, In fact, one of, my favorites, Thank you. one of my favorite experiences was a, there was an 80-something-year-old African-American man who yeah. had marched with Dr. Leroy King. Haynes, yes. Unbelievable. Yeah. I was, that, just listening to him was, was worth the trip. Um, I've said it at a dinner table. This is your journey into this is even seen in your own family. So I want to be careful not to necessarily posture you as an expert, but you've got you've got a, you've <laughs> I'm, got I'm a the heart for this thing. Yeah, where did that come from? Um, never thought about it that way. Came slowly. Um, so a little backstory: born in 1980 in the Bay Area of California. Mm-hmm. Um, grew up very much in a kind of colorblind mindset. So the kind of, I have zero um, memories of anything even remotely racist in my family of origin. Mm. I remember I have a grandmother um, who, I had a great-grandmother who I remember once made a really racist statement about black people, and we were all shocked Mm. And we were like, but she was almost 90 years old. And I think we kind of interpret it as lost her mind or something. I have no experience, but it was kind of, uh, my dad is an avid basketball player. So I, so he just was always drawn to NBA culture, which Mm. is really black culture. Right. And so it was always joking. My mom had a crush on Isaiah Thomas and you know (laughs) what I mean? So I just, I, I don't understand. That's not, that's the opposite of wokeness, but I just, I have no memories at all anything remotely racist, but the, the messaging was kind of, 
uh, racism was this horrible thing in America, and then there was the civil rights movement and Dr. King, and it fixed all that, and praise God, it's over, and now we're all friends. Mm. That was kind of the messaging. Mm. And I grew up in a very kind of comfortable middle-class bubble of kind of suburban Silicon Valley. And so that was kind of my, mm. that was kind of my mindset. Mm. You know what I mean? It was just kind of like a, a thing from the past. Mm. I, had, I was woefully disconnected from people living in under-resourced neighborhoods, not even that far from where I grew up, mm. but it was just another world, you know, to what right. I grew up in. And, you know, you're a kid. You're not, like, Absolutely. really aware of that stuff. So I ended up married to, similar to you, um, to a first-generation uh, a woman from a Latina family. And so, but honestly, neither, we were so young. Neither of us were even culturally that aware. Um, you know, her dad is, a, you know, born in Mexico City, became a citizen when she, was in, when she was a teenager. But their family wasn't super political, so that didn't make them, identity politics were not at all part of her family of origin. So we started to realize the hard way after we'd been married for a little while that we view the world very differently. Mm. And it actually, that was probably my first introduction was through conflict in my marriage. Mm. And, you know, me come from this majority white background, her come from this very warm culture. I mean, simple things like time management, Mm. where for me, being somewhere at seven means you're there at 650. For her, it means around seven, you start thinking about moving <laughs> toward that direction. <laughs> you know, not, to, not to ethnically stereotype. Yeah, no, you know? I've dealt with that uh, and dealing with it in my marriage as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, people are more important than timelines. Yep. Yep. And, you know, um, so, I mean, my ancestors, like, invented the clock, you know. <laughs> <laughs> not, I mean, her family is just extraordinarily warm and hospi- hospitality. Uh, my family, your home was kind of your castle. Yeah. Kind of came home, you closed it off. Strong nuclear family, but very little. Her family was like a open door policies. Always people living with them, coming for dinner, dropping by, staying. It was just this. It's beautiful. Yeah. But that that can create some conflict. Sure. You know, when she, we both have. So probably my first introduction to ethnic unity was through realizing what we what we accidentally got into with our marriage. You know, we weren't like marrying to try to advance the gospel through right. ethnic. We were just fell in love. So it was. It, look, I tell people all the time, it's relationships yes. which are really key. In your case, it's a marriage. When I read First Corinthians nine. 19 to 23, which is the classic text on missiology and contextualization mm-hmm. where Paul talks about, to the Jew, I became a Jew. Then to those outside the law who would be Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. I, I think one of the things Paul is, sh- and then he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. He's showing us the eclectic nature of his relationships. I mean, I think that's even why he gives shout-outs, why God wanted the names of people codified at the end of some of his letters was just the multi-ethnic relationships and community that Paul has. Mm -hmm. And I think relationships are huge in forming us, especially multi-ethnic relationships, and that's what I hear you saying, is that was a major marker in your journey. I think that's one of the challenges in the church is people are entering this conversation through the lens of ideology and politics, not through the lens of relationship. Amen. That's good. And so then it gets sucked into the, you know, culture wars and the left-right binary and people's, you know, political enmeshment and idolatry with whatever party they represent rather than through the lens of the New Testament and relationships with human beings. So, yeah, step one was marriage. Step two was um, 
through a combination of just reading my Bible and sitting under good teaching in seminary, learning a biblical theology of justice. Mm. Not even talking about racial justice here. Just justice, biblical mm-hmm. theology of justice, not making a political statement. What's well, a biblical word? Justice. It's a biblical, <laughs> and yeah, if you don't like the word justice, you don't like the Bible. Right, right. And I just remember my, one of my first seminary classes with one of my best professors, him doing this deep dive on Sadak and Mishpat, mm. which are this, this Hebrew, these two Hebrew words that uh, 95% of the time go together, righteousness and justice. Mm. And they're not synonyms. They mutually reinforce each other, righteousness and justice. And him just taking us through from Genesis to Revelation, this biblical theme, and basically saying that one of the dominant themes of the library of Scripture is Sadak and Mishpat, mm. righteousness and justice. Him explaining what this is, you know, justice. Again, I'm not even talking through a racial lens. This was not even on my radar. It was like the opposite of woke. Remember, I thought racism was dealt with. I thought that was the thing right. in the past. right. And I'm still interpreting my marriage through the lens of cultural differences. Right, you know, right. we got to need to sort out. And but learning, you know, his his shorthand for justice is inconveniencing yourself for the sake of the quote worthless person. Mm. Not meaning they're actually worthless, but yeah. the person that society deems worthless doesn't value. So you are intentionally inconveniencing yourself on behalf of another. So the first, my first introduction to a word like privilege was not through progressive politics. It was through biblical theology in my Old Testament class where privilege was not a bad thing. It was a thing that healthy people accrued through multi-generational families that then had a Christian responsibility to leverage on behalf of those who don't have it. And that's where Tim Keller talks about righteousness in the Bible is disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others. Oh, that's so well said. The same thing. And are you thinking of his book, Generous Justice? There, I love that book. And then he says the reverse: wickedness is advantaging yourself to the disadvantage of others. Mm. And yes, yes, classic Keller. But to your point. that's exactly, I think, the way justice is framed in the scriptures. That's a biblical, yeah. Set aside yeah. politics, set aside all the culture war stuff. That's just right. biblical theology of justice. Right. So I was wrecked by that. And then I was specifically wrecked by one major example of justice in the Old Testament, which is God's heart for the fatherless, mm. which shows up in the New Testament, even in Paul's theology of adoption. So, um, again, once I started thinking, okay, any privilege that I have— is for the sake of others, specifically for the sake of the disadvantaged. My wife and I then began to ask different questions, like what do we do with our, how do we use, we have a, have a college education, we have a home, you know, we own a home, we have two healthy boys, we have a decent marriage, we're like, what do we do with this? Mm. And it's a very big world. We can't solve all the problems. So one small-scale step is we felt really moved by the Spirit through our reading of the Bible, in particular theology of justice, to adopt. Mm. So we adopted, and a long, very long story short, it ended up being a little African girl who's three years old at the time, our daughter Sunday, not a white person. Mm. And so as part of that process, I had to go through an in-depth training around race and racism. Really? Yeah, it's part of the adoption process. Wow. And it was uh, it was new to me. Because remember, I thought this was a thing in the past. And I remember the first session. Okay, this, this is a re- legally required, not legally, this is a required by our adoption agency. 
you are a person, if you're, you know, a white person or anybody, everybody has to go through this training. You're adopting another ethnicity. So you're going to do all this research around their ethnicity and race and racism. And I remember that first session said, basically said that everyone has racism in their heart. Mm. And I was like, wait, what? What are you talking about? Mm. And that was their whole perspective, which is interesting internationally. That's my experience of how Christians, Christians internationally talk about racism the way that Americans talk about lust or greed. Mm. Interesting. So Americans would, would think about, well, of course, everybody has lust in them. Everybody has greed in them. Some people give themselves over to lust and greed. But it's not like we're the pure ones and they're the impure ones. Right. You know, we all, this is a struggle we all have. Sure. That is my experience. When I, when I am with uh, South African Christians or when I'm with Christians around the world and when I'm with African Christians, that's how they talk about racism. Oh, yeah, I have prejudice in my heart. And Jesus is working on that. Like, it's just like Americans never talk that way. But I think that's so key because I think the reason why is cancel culture. Of course. And in We're our righteous, culture, you're right. wicked. We're blameless, you're. And in our culture, the worst thing you can be called is a racist. So, what does that naturally do? I think most of us, our posture is that's not in me. And I think that's the road to being deceived, what the Bible calls deceived, where a healthy what some scholars would call homartiology, doctrine of sin, yes. would say, I'm, I'm a sinner. See, and this, this is this in, dark stuff in my there's heart. There's dark stuff in my heart. It's Lord, covered by the blood of Jesus. But change me. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for your blood, and may your blood yeah. change my heart. Yep, it's good. So that was, I think, the next step, was going through the adoption and then learning, you know, cultural idiosyncrasies that I was completely in the dark of about some of the differences between African-American culture and African culture. Yes. And now raising a daughter who has a white dad in a majority white city and majority white church who's not only not white, she's not African-American, she's African. Yeah. But she's experienced as black. So, so that was a whole learning curve. Sure. And how do we honor her heritage and both allow her to thrive in American culture but really honor her heritage? And then uh, I'd say the last piece was, again, theological learning about uh, reading some scholars, and this might be controversial in Southern Baptist world, but reading some scholars who were offering some new perspectives on Paul's theology of justification and specifically arguing that Paul's primary teaching on justification is in Galatians and Romans, which are the two primary letters in the New Testament dealing with ethnic unity. And how, and basically offering an interpretation that says built into justification is not being just declared to be in the right and a part right with God, but a part of the family of God. And that actually, primary times Paul's using that language, he's talking about Jew and Gentile coming together. Mm. And I never realized that ethnic unity, which is good language, I like that you use that. It's a major theme in the New Testament. Absolutely. It's major. I like yes. it's like how did I not see that? It's on yes. it's all there's like whole all over ar- Acts. All over yeah, Acts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Arguably Galatians and Romans, that's the main like one of the main right. things they're doing. And I had just missed it. Yep. I just I just I just I read those since I was a little kid I've been reading yep. the New Testament. Yep. And somehow I've just missed yep. that that ethnic unity was at the central that God was forming a new humanity. That's right. Not based on uh, your ethnicity or your, and not erasing your ethnicity, right. but bringing different ethnicities together around the gospel to make a new humanity, Absolutely. the advanced sign of the coming kingdom of God. That's Absolutely. every tribe and tongue and nation. 
So those were, I'd say, were the three things that brought me into, oh, wow, there's, yeah. there's a whole aspect of church and discipleship that I have completely missed. Yeah. So you've got that foundation. You're on this journey, theologically formed, relationally formed. You've gone through some training. Then 2020 hits, oh, right? And, it, and I'm probably not as formed as you think I am. <laughs> right, right, right. No, we're all in process. We're, we're, all, we're all in a journey. 2020 hits. You're a pastor. Um, Ahmaud Arbery, Brianna Taylor, of course, George Floyd. Um, um, how was that hitting you? Just John Mark as a person? Like, what are, what are some of the feelings? What are, what are some of the things you're processing in the middle of all that? I'm not asking you how are you pastoring your people, but what's going on in your heart as you're seeing that? The Ahmed Arbery one hit me really hard because of the just blatant violence of it. Yeah. You know, it just it feels like something out of a movie. You know, it didn't feel real. Um, and then watching some of my black friends, how impacted they were by that. Mm. That was a moment for me. I don't think I had enough time to process it because the Portland slash internet world that I live in went from quiet to raging in about three seconds. So, uh, I mean, within a couple of days of George Floyd, my city was literally on fire. Mm. And we, it was all mayhem had broken out. And at that point, there wasn't a lot of space to, like, process. And my daughter is still too young for, for her to really be emotionally in touch. Mm what she's experiencing, you know, she's a little kid. Yeah. So trying to have those conversations, but you could just tell she's not, she's not interacting with it at a sophisticated emotional level yet. So, I mean, Portland was a very hard place to be. Nowhere it was an easy place to be in 2020, but Portland was a mess. Which, okay, so our setting, the triangle's unique. Yeah. You know, you, you've got pockets of it that I would say is very conservative. Mm-hmm. You've got pockets of it that are very liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got our church, the Summit Church, which has campuses in all of these different What a challenge pockets. for you guys. It's a huge yeah. challenge. It's a huge challenge. Um, and you are— Portland's not like that. Portland's not, Portland is not like that. It is— Progressive, liberal. politically homogenous. Yes. Yeah, you're you're either center left or you're off the map left. Right. So a couple interesting things. You know, Malcolm X had this famous quote. Um, I think he was in Harlem when he said it at the time. It was in the middle of some election, and he said to a group of um, African Americans, he, he was trying to get them to understand that just voting for Democrats is not gonna is not gonna cure what he interpreted as their as what's ailing their community. Mm. So he said, listen, the white liberal is not your friend. 
mm-hmm. which was a very um, um, countercultural thought. Explain that. So the white liberal is not going to cure your ills or the white liberal is not your friend? Explain. He, he meant it from the standpoint of there's been this narrative in the black community where really since 1960, um, we have historically, the black community since over the last 60 years has voted Democrat. Correct. And a part of that, you understand You've got Lyndon Johnson signing, you know, the Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act, so on and so forth. But then you also you're you're looking around at at some of these cities that are run by Democrats and you're going what what you expected to get from that party hasn't necessarily come to fruition. Yes. Right. So now to talk a lot of ideology. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to be careful. I'm I'm not pitting one against the other, but Malcolm X was prophetic. He spoke to that. See, we feel the unrest of that in 2021, right? I mean, I've spent time in the Bay Area. You know the Bay Area better than me. Horrible homeless crisis, tearing down projects, and it's run by, and so— White liberals. Right. But the assumption is— Yeah, they would say all the right things. Yes. The assumption is liberals and progressives— by very nature of the term progressive, are way ahead on issues of race relations. And you were pastoring right in the middle of all that. So how is pastoring in the middle of George Floyd in a progressive city like Portland, dealing with issues of race? Talk to me about some about those dynamics, which would be different than pastoring, let's say, in Savannah, Georgia, yeah. or other places. Or even a place like here where there's people from different perspectives. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, let me just say what it was without trying to, you know, pathologize it. Portland is a politically homogenous echo chamber. Mm. So whatever your digital algorithm is, Portland's a city of that. Mm. So you can live in Raleigh-Durham and your digital algorithm might feed you uh, – right-leaning or left-leaning ideologies, tweets, slogans, news, fake news. Uh, But at least you're going to run into people around you that think differently than you. Not Portland. (laughs) You know what I mean? You have the digital algorithm echo chamber and you have the urban echo chamber. And and there's enormous social pressure to conform to left-leaning ideology. So the, the weird thing about Portland is it's one of the most liberal cities in the Western world. But it's also arguably the whitest big city in America. Mm. So what that translates into is, again, the racial justice conversation is like through the lens of Twitter hashtags and slogans, not so much through the lens of relationship. And when white liberals have relationships with people of color, they're almost always people of uh, the same economic, socioeconomic strata. So it's a fellow designer at an advertising agency or whatever, and you're both making a hundred grand a year. Um, it's not necessarily with people across the economic spectrum. So that made it very hard. And the other thing that's very hard is that in progressive culture as a whole, and Portland would be a concentrated form of that, the racial justice conversation is intentionally and intimately tied to the LGBTQ the transgender conversation. Yes. So those are not yep. in Portland. Those are not separate conversations. They're the same conversation. Mm-hmm. 
through a, a very clear philosophical lens. Okay. You could call critical theory, you could call whatever, but they are, they are viewed together through the same rubric of thought, which makes it very difficult to engage as a pastor because I'm an Orthodox Christian, which means I care about ethnic unity and sexual holiness. Mm. And, um, and it means I mm. think about racial and ethnic unity Christianly first and politically second. Mm. Not that political theorists don't have great, I've learned a lot, but my primary like thought matrix is the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the book of Acts, you know. So that's what made it really hard to pastor through mm. was, um, and that's why I think so many people that aren't liberals throw the baby out with, a, there's a huge couple major mistakes I see conservative Christians make. One is that they think of racism as a political issue mm. rather than as a, is a discipleship to Jesus issue that, of course, has political ramifications around in our nation, as most things do. And, uh, and two, they react against far-left secular ideologies around race rather than chewing the meat, spitting out the bones, mm. and holding to a biblical theology of ethnic unity. And it's hard not to throw it out if you're not a liberal because mm. you're turned off by a lot of these ideologies. Absolutely. I'm turned off by a lot of these ideologies. And I'm not super politically hard either way, but a lot of these ideologies are, are very anti-Christian. And so trying to interface with them right. is tricky. Right. So l let's end on this question. This is just, this is just fascinating. Um, we're, we're kingdom of heaven people. Yes. We are gospel people. Before we are Americans. Absolutely. And way before we are Republicans or Democrats Absolutely. or Independents. Or Absolutely. So you you made a statement. We were talking, and and just it, it's a it's a no brainer. We are all being formed by the world and by the culture, which means a major part of the work of Jesus Christ uh, in the discipleship formation process is reforming reforming us. Yes. Okay. So apply this to the issue of a kingdom perspective of race talking to a group of people, and let's put it in our setting, let's not pick on liberals, yep. but to a group of people, some have been formed more towards a progressive ideology, mm -hmm. others more towards a conservative ideology. Mm -hmm. how, does, how does the gospel press against both of those and reform us as we are in this journey of ethnic unity? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think um, one of the things I love about your preaching and about this church is the strong emphasis on the gospel and on the gospel's implications for our identity. Mm. And uh, there's, a, there's a Christian professor who just wrote a book on politics I really liked, and he had this great line. He said, baptism is our primary pledge of allegiance. Mm. And um, so there's a lot of political idolatry is one word for it in this country, or my friend, our mutual friend, Rich Viotis, mm -hmm. calls it political enmeshment. Mm -hmm. You're familiar with the psychological category of enmeshment, yeah. which is like kind of like codependency yeah. where your identity gets unhealthily wrapped up in another person. You know, it can be enmeshment with your mother or enmeshment with your spouse or enmeshment with your child and in a very toxic and unhealthy, dysfunctional way. Yeah. There's a lot of American Christians on both sides that are locked in political enmeshment or political idolatry where uh, they're, they're not just 
there's a party that they tend to vote for because they think it's the least bad option of all the bad options, mm. and they're trying to do some good in the world, and they think voting this way will help do more good than voting the other way. Uh, th- they actually have I you know, the way politics often work is, you know, to to vote for a certain politician is to subscribe to one certain worldview is to subscribe to a Christian orientation of the world, is to subscribe to your identity and sense of belonging, is to subscribe to your sense of self, is to subscribe to the deepest part of who you are before Mm. God. Mm. So to question who you voted for is at some emotional level touching on the deepest place in who you are. Mm. That is enmeshment. Mm. That's not a biblical theology of politics. That's you have a you have an idol that has somehow crept in to enslave your heart, and you don't have a healthy emotional distance between who you voted for and who you are. Mm. And so the gospel should break those chains off of us. And it doesn't mean politics aren't important. It doesn't mean voting is not important. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have really good, robust debate about politics as Christians. It means that debate should have nothing to do with our identity and our allegiance. Our, you know, identity is where we get our sense of self, our sense of self-worth, and our sense of belonging to a community and our sense of meaning and purpose in the world. Mm. That must come from Jesus and the church. Amen. And we must realize that the church is full of uh, Republicans and Democrats and Green Party and independents and anarchists even. There, are, there is a thing called Christian anarchists, believe it or not. Wow. And uh, the church is full of white people and black people and Latinos and legal immigrants and illegal immigrants and Americans and Nigerians and Ghanese people and Guatemalans. And that is our primary allegiance. We belong first and foremost to a king named Jesus, not a president named whoever, and to a church, not to a party named whatever, and to the people of God, not even to our own ethnicity. And, And this radically challenges anybody. If you are a a white person and you're really married to your white identity, it challenges that. If you're a black person, it doesn't erase your ethnicity, but it challenges. We all have these various levels of identity. I'm a white person. I'm a man. I'm an American. I'm an INTJ on the (laughs) Myers-Briggs. I'm a pastor. I'm a dad. So we have all these identities. They're not bad, but we don't rate them all equally. And whoever I voted for that's, in my mind, pretty dang low on the identity right. hierarchy. Right. <laughs> and disciple of Jesus is at the very top. Yeah. And then it would be like, you know, husband, dad. I, I don't even need to rate them. That's probably not the way to think about it. So I think back to what you're saying. Man, unless if we start from a place where identity is in Christ, our primary pledge of allegiance is baptism, our, our tribe is not our ethnicity or our political party. It's the Church of Jesus. And we have a robust understanding that the Church of Jesus is global. It is historic. It is multi-ethnic. And if if we allow prejudice or racism into our heart, we are going to be miserable in eternity. Absolutely. Because it is going to be every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And it's going to be love. And I, you know, my friend J.T. Thomas he defines racism differently than a lot of the world I live in. He defines it as hatred as the hatred of the image of God in another person. Mm. So racism is when you say, I don't like what the image of God looks like in your ethnicity mm. or in your gender or in your mm. culture or in your mm. background. And, uh, oh man, may God weed that out of our heart. Amen. So that then enables us to approach a conversation first through the lens of discipleship and church. 
And that doesn't mean that the national conversations and the political conversations don't really matter. Um, but those are more questions of what's the best way to solve the problem. Right. Uh, you know, our first conversation should be how do we model this is discipleship. How do we model now what's coming for the whole world at the resurrection of the dead? Amen. How do we as the church be the advanced sign of the kingdom of God? So that means our, you know, you said this when you were with us. You had the best practical thing. You just said start around your table. Yep. Start trying to have a table, you know. So every Friday night in my house, there's a table, and it's about half white. Mm. And, uh, and that's, that's a very small thing and honestly it's wonderful i mean it's absolutely wonderful and we love it and there's i mean it's it's there's a wonderful group of people it's not a it's a it's a easy those are easy relationships for us but what that's done to enrich our life to enrich our experience and then when i think about this issue i don't think through hashtags and politics i think about my table yeah because this is my kin yeah you know this is we we've, we have this idea of kin which is kind of like you know f- non-blood family that right. we're just kind of this is our kin and, uh, and, and we look different. Absolutely. And we love it. And it's transforming. And it's a small, ordinary. That's not changing the world. Yeah. Changing my world. Yep. John Mark, this has been rich. And uh, thanks for spending some time as we're just talking about ethnic unity. And we're taking step by step here. You've been listening to the Summit Church's Kainos podcast where we are a pastoral podcast exploring what ethnic unity looks like in a large, predominantly white Southern church wanting to become multi-ethnic again. You've been listening to John Mark Comer just share thoughts in his journey of ethnic unity, and we have been enriched for it. Thank you. Hopefully you'll subscribe to our podcast, uh, give us a like, put in some great comments, help us to get the word out to more and more people. We are absolutely grateful. Thank you. God bless.